This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Coming from Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread? And do they not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. On that, salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is the word of God. Uh, Good morning. Let's just start with uh, some prayer, and then we'll we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, I... uh, I thank you. I thank you that we can find our refuge in you. I thank you that you have equipped us with your spirit. You've united us to your son. You've, um, he's risen from the dead. He's seated on the throne and he's, he's the second Adam bringing in the kingdom through the spirit in ways that um, the first could never did. So uh, we're here today. We're worshiping you. We we desire to have a, a sense of your presence and, and, and not, just, not just in this moment as we worship today, but as we go throughout the week. And so I pray that as we, as we look at foolishness, as we look at wisdom, that that would encourage us to turn to you and find rest and find peace and find joy. So I thank you for this time and um, just give me a, uh, a clear mind to communicate the, the wonderful and beautiful truths that you have given us in this psalm um, so that you would be an encouragement, so that your spirit would work to draw us closer and closer to you. In your name I pray, amen. So yeah, this morning we're, um, we're going to talk a little bit about foolishness and wisdom, um, which, you know, foolishness isn't the the most, most exciting topic in the world. Um, maybe I guess if we're, if we're saying somebody else is foolish, we're okay with that. Um, but sort of reflecting on our own foolishness is, is difficult. Uh, I've had to eat all the words I've been preparing to say all week long. Uh, so it's been, it's been difficult uh, a little bit for me just thinking about what foolishness is. But I thought it would help a little bit uh, just to start with... Uh, some historical context in Psalm 14. We get this little title that says to the, the, to the choir master of David. Uh, and it's telling us that it's, a, it's meant to be a, a song. This is something that we, we've kind of said that. We, uh, Jesse talked about a, a mictum and, and how that's like a little more difficult to interpret. But, but this is to the choir master. So we have an idea that this is a song. And it says that it's of David. So we know that King David wrote this. Uh, he, David is like one of those 
figures in, in the Bible that we could do entire sermon series about. They're uh, like Moses, like Paul, like Jesus, like David. We have a, we have a ton of information on, on, on who David is and where he came from and experiences in his life and, and where he ended up. And he was a, a king. He was, he was sort of the, the, the if, if they were going to look back and say we had a legit king you know, you know, we look back and be like, well, this president was a great president. You know, if the Jews were to complain about something right now and look back, they'd be like, well, David, if he was like David, then that would be sort of like the legit king of the Old Testament. And that's sort of how they thought of David. And we get little clues sometimes when, when we're reading the Psalms. We get clues that are kind of give us an idea of where at in David's life, because we know so much about David's life. We get clues sometimes in the Psalms, where at in David's life are we when he wrote this Psalm, when he wrote this poem, when he, when he had this like prayer to the Lord, where were we at in his life? And this is one of those Psalms where we don't really get a lot of those clues. So, so if you're wondering like, where is, what is going on in his life? Where, we, where can we put this? This is one of those Psalms where we don't really have like the best idea of what's going on right here. And so we, we can pick up on a few things, though. Typically, when he talks about the nations, he's talking about people who are outside of the covenant community. And so in this psalm, he doesn't really bring up particularly the Gentiles. He talks about the people, and he talks about all, like, sort of comprehensively. But it doesn't seem like most scholars, most interpreters of this psalm, it doesn't really seem like he's talking about people outside of the people of God, like outside of the covenant community, the Philistines or whatever other nations I can think of that I can't. So um, Syria or, or any, any of the sort of the enemies that are of, of, of Israel itself. So it seems like he's talking sort of either comprehensively or about the people of God themselves. And then Paul sort of picks up on this a little bit and he, in the most probably the most depressing string of verses in all of the Bible. Paul says, there's no one that does good. There's no one that's righteous. There's everyone is terrible. It's like a giant list of, of pieces from a bunch of different places in the Bible saying like how bad we all are. And, and right after that, he says that, that the, he, this Psalm, he quotes, he takes a piece from this Psalm when, when Paul's listing this out in Romans 2. And right after that, he says, we know that the law is for those under the law. It's, a, it's sort of a weird phrase, but it sounds like Paul is picking up on this reality that we're, the, the foolishness that David is, is sort of bemoaning in this psalm is foolishness that's for those who are aware of the law. So it's this idea, it, sort of, it sort of builds on this idea that this particular psalm is probably about David where a time in his life where even the people of God even those in the community, in Israel, and, and God's people at the time would be Israel. We, we'd say God's people right now are the church. We're God's people. So even God's people, the people in his life who are meant to be there to give him wisdom, who are meant to be there to encourage him and support him, even God's people are just being totally foolish, being super ridiculous, uh, committing abominable acts, and if we then sort of narrow in, okay, well, if that's what's going on, when in David's life did that happen? 
And I think, you know, one of them is with Absalom, his son, sort of everyone turned against him, but then he kind of had a group. Um, but I think the probably, and I think this is where most commentators land. Again, we don't have like exact clues, so we can't know. But it makes the most sense when he's anointed king, God has said, the God through Samuel has said, this is the next king right here, David. And if you're familiar with the story, the current king isn't super down with that. So God through his prophet has spoken and said, this is who is going to be the next king. And everyone in Israel basically rejects that idea and hunts David down to kill him. So he's sort of in this situation where he can look around at God's people. He can point to what God's prophet has said. I'm the next king. And yet everyone around him is ignoring God and what God has said and, and looking to sort of hunt him down and destroy him. So we get this really cool picture of an anointed king that suffers in David as, as, the, as the entire people of God are, are sort of going after him. And he is eventually risen up to glory and is ascended to the throne and has all the power and authority that the, the rightful king of God should have. And, and that's why we say that Jesus is the greater David. Like if, if anyone can sympathize with the people of God acting a fool, the people of God turning against you, the people of God being the root of all of your suffering, Jesus can, experience, Jesus can sympathize with that. Who was it that cried, crucify him, crucify him? Not the Romans, not the Gentiles, not the, not the other people. It was God's people. It was the people that he came to rescue. It was the people that should have known the prophet said, here is the anointed king. So I think this is a, 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 an easy psalm when we sort of see the, maybe the historical context as best we can figure out of David. We can see the looking around at those who should be a comfort, who should be, who should be giving me wisdom, who should be accepting the words of God, but actually the source of my suffering. Um, we can see how that can ultimately point us to the experience that Jesus had with the community of God. And so kind of given that as the uh, historical and Christological context as we jump into this psalm, I want to talk about a couple of things. What is foolishness? What is foolishness? And then if we understand what foolishness is, it should help us say, okay, well, where, where is wisdom? Where, where, where do I find wisdom? Because I think if I, if I sit on this idea of foolishness and if we've been in church for uh, any amount of time in our life, uh, we're probably thinking about foolishness as like dumb things we shouldn't do. And, and if, we're, and if we're, we're drawing the line also in things that we know in Scripture, we're saying foolishness is sin. So, so most of us wouldn't stand on this fact and say, okay, well, sweet, we're going to spend half a sermon talking about sin and talking about foolishness. Um, not, the most, not the most encouraging topic in the world. But I think that looking at foolishness and sort of understanding what it is and then understanding what is wisdom in light of that. So if I, if I have a better idea of what foolishness is and understanding what wisdom is, I really appreciate the plea 
that David has at the end of the psalm. It sort of comes out of nowhere, and, and we'll sort of end with that. But the, my hope is, my prayer, uh, my desire as we, as we look at these things is we don't look at foolishness necessarily to know what we did wrong. We look at foolishness so that we, be, we can be comforted by the wisdom and the presence and the glory and the beauty of, of what wisdom brings us to the Lord. So I don't want us to, to stop with we failed, but we're going to start with that. I, I, I'm hoping that that gets us to how then do we turn from the foolishness, not just to not be fools, like not just to not like, hey, do the right thing, yada, 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 but we want to do the right thing. We want to be wise so that we can ultimately be drawn to the beauty and the glory and the wonder and what David says is the, the salvation that you and I can experience as we suffer and as we have joy and as we deal with all the things in the world. Like that, that's kind of where I like want us to go as we, as we go through this. So let's just start with what's foolishness. Uh, so look at verses, just verse one, right at the very beginning. He says, uh, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What does it mean to say something in our heart? I think that's the first, or maybe the first question is, what, what is the heart? What is the psalmist talking about when he says the heart? And I feel like this is like one of those topics. Uh, it actually is. We have a list of to- topical sermon series that we potentially want to do. And like talking about that with Cole and with Ben uh, and even with Kent a little bit, our, our advisor. Um, like there is a, on the list, there's a thing, well, what does it mean when we talk about the heart? And I think that that could potentially be a sermon series because it's, that word is used over 700 times in the Old Testament heart. And in the New Testament, that word is used uh, over 170 times. So we're approaching a thousand times in all of scripture when we talk about the heart. And I think the easiest way, one that's sort of, sort of helpful for me, and I'm going to survey just a handful of those like almost a thousand references. I just want to make a couple of quick points. When we talk about the heart, we're talking about the, the spiritual center of who we are. We're talking about the, the we, we are material. I have a, I have a mind. Uh, you can measure the synapses that, that fire. You know, we get, I haven't had an MRI, but everyone says they're terrible because um, you're just like in a little thing. Um, we can see those things. We can, we can even affect, physically affect the chemistry that's going on in our brain. That's, that's a part of who we are. We're, we're, we're physical beings. But there's also a spiritual side of us. Uh, we're, uh, we're, we're not just made of the dirt in Genesis, but, but, we're, but the spirit breathes life into us. So we're both spiritual and physical beings. So the heart is like the spiritual center of who we are that affects everything about our, even our, 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 our physical nature. Our heart isn't something that we can see, isn't something we can experiment on, uh, isn't something that we can measure but it's a spiritual element of us that affects all of the other physical attributes of who I am. Um, here's a, a, a verse from the Proverbs. Uh, it, it affects our, Proverbs 
It says, the, the heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is idea that in the heart, in the, the spiritual center of who we are, there are plans that are being made. And this is something we would, we would uh, sort of typically associate with our, our thinking. And there's an element of that, that our heart affects our thinking. So when our heart makes plans, then that, that's, that's what comes up in our minds, just like we're talking about speech sort of in this psalm. Uh, in the next verse, uh, Proverbs 15, 28, it says, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. And it gives us a little parallel statement. So if the heart ponders, then what does of the righteous, what does the wicked do? But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. And there's this, there's this direct connection in the psalm between what's going on in the heart, this sort of spiritual center of who we are, and then what comes out of our mouth. The heart affects what comes out of my mouth, what I say. Um, another one I thought was interesting, Proverbs 15, 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. There's a handful of things going on here. It's talking about like our emotions, and it's talking about our facial expressions. So it's saying our heart doesn't just affect our mind and how we make plans. Our heart doesn't just affect what comes out of my mouth, but my, my heart actually affects how I look. What, what's my demeanor? Uh, another one that's a little more comprehensive is Proverbs 4.23. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And this is like a comprehensive psalm. It's saying, consider the spiritual center of who you are, because out of that flows all the things of life. How do you feel? How do you think? How's your face look? What's your demeanor? Everything is centered in my spiritual heart. This is the, the, the spiritual center of who we are. Paul uses the, the phrase, I don't have a verse for this, but he talks about the, the outer person is wasting away. Um, we were joking about getting older um, not that long ago. It takes, uh, it's easy to put pounds on now. It just takes a little bit longer to, to shave them off. Uh, it's not impossible. <laughs> uh, it's, it's math, less calories, you know. It's, it's just, it doesn't work as quickly as it used to before. And we're saying the outer man is wasting away. There, there's an element of our physical body that is not getting better as time goes on. But Paul says the inner man, in relation to the heart, is being renewed day by day by day. There's this idea that the, the heart, the spiritual center of who we are, is actually being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. So let's go back to our, our, uh, our first half of our first verse. It says, keep your heart with all diligence, or sorry, I'm just reading off the screen. Our first, our, uh, the first half of our first verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what does it mean then to say in my heart, there is no God? I think what he's not saying, he's not, remember, he's talking to the, the covenant community. He's talking to the people of God. He's not saying there are people walking around saying, God doesn't exist. Like, they're not saying out loud that there isn't God. He's saying the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What does it mean to say there is no God in our hearts? I think Jesus, 
picks up on this in Matthew chapter 6. Gives us kind of a, an idea of what it means to say it in our hearts that there is no God. Verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says right here, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, the thing that you desire, the thing that you love, that you value, that you'll rearrange your life for, the thing that you treasure, that's what your heart is all about. That's what affects your heart. And what, what Jesus is, he's picking up on this idea that if the fool says in his heart, there is no God, okay, well, let's think about what we know about God, basically. We're, uh, Jesse told us last week, in his presence is the fullness of joy. God is where all of our joy is, is made complete. God is where anything and everything we would desire, want, or need is given to us in his presence. That's, a, that's one aspect we know about God. God is, is sovereign. We know that he's, he's ultimately in control of all the things that are happening in the world. He's orchestrating everything out in our life a very particular way. And he's not just sovereign and indifferent. He's sovereign and loving. We, we, can't, we can't dismiss other attributes of God as we think about who God is. He's wise, he's loving, he's compassionate, he cares about you, he's close to you, he's intimate, he's, he's carefully planning out all these things so that you could enjoy his presence more, so that you could find fullness of joy, so that you could have peace in everything he's doing. And he's saying, I've revealed myself to you in scripture so that you wouldn't say in your heart, I don't exist, so that you would recognize really who I am not a version of me that you come up with because then I might as well not exist, but really who I am and that that's what you would treasure. That's what you would orchestrate your life around. That's what you would seek after. That's what you would desire. That's what you would say in your heart, this is the thing that I want the most because this is real. And he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And it's difficult to know. It's difficult to know what's, like I said, we can't measure our heart. I can't, um, you know, there isn't like a special prayer that like gives me insight into like where is my heart at. Um, I, there's, no, there's no language I, I can learn to understand like what my heart is saying. But we, we do get clues to understand where our heart is. And that's what comes out of us. That's what comes out of us. So if the fool says, I'm not going to acknowledge God in my heart, the very next part of the verse gives us sort of the outcomes of that. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Bad things come out of us when our hearts are saying, there is no God. Bad things come out of us when the spiritual center of who we are 
is not acknowledging and understanding and worshiping and treasuring the one and true God. The same God that's loving, the same God that's sovereign, the same God that's wise, the same God that's close, the same God that died for us, the same God that's given us his spirit. When we're not worshiping and valuing and treasuring that true God, maybe, maybe a little bit, but we don't like this part, we're saying the true God doesn't exist. It's a false God. And so what comes out of us are not good things. And Jesus picks up on this again in, in Luke. Luke chapter six. He says, for no, verse 43, he says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Talking about the, the, the produce of that tree. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Makes sense. I like how simple Jesus is sometimes. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Again, thanks, Jesus. Nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure, he brings us up again, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of, the evil, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And here Jesus is picking up on the same thing that's happening in this first verse. He's saying, what do you treasure? Because when bad things come out of us, it's showing you what you treasure. We don't love and worship and honor Jesus and get pissed off when something happens, gets upset. We don't, we don't see God as sovereign and as loving, as considerate, when we know we shouldn't be in this situation. And this is hard. Like dealing with what is foolishness is, 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 is painful. It's, a, it's not a mirror I wanna, I wanna reflect and look that, that closely at because I am act a fool a lot. And I was thinking about a handful of different bad things that come out of us. You know, frustrate. I'm a, a, a I'm an Enneagram one, so frustration is like an easy one to just go to relate to. I know that's not everybody. Um, there's 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 anxiety when we're put into situations that we can't control. We're, we're, we're God. It's not. Jesus says we shouldn't be anxious for things. I take the, your father, your heavenly father is taking care of you. And it's one of those verses I think if we wrestle with that, we're like, I hate that verse. Because it's like really in your face and things make me anxious and it's difficult. And that's true. We're, we, that's, that's a real struggle. That's okay. But I think in our hearts we're saying, Lord, you are not God that is sovereign, that loves me, that's considering me, that's in my life, that's going through this with me. Something about you is not right. I'm gonna say in my heart that you don't exist because I will justify what's coming out of me right now. And that's hard. Uh, sexual sin is another just difficult one, maybe because it's everywhere. But, but when we are attracted to things that we shouldn't be drawn to, when we're, when we're, we're tempted to, to lust in our, in our minds or however that, spells itself out 
We're saying the God that is all satisfying and all beautiful and that should just draw me to him with his presence and his glory and distract me should be the the biggest distraction in my life because I'm just obsessed with how beautiful he is. We're saying that God doesn't exist. We're justifying what comes out of us in our our heart where we're denying the reality of who God is. And I think there's a, these are, you know, there's, there's whole books on these things. There's, uh, if, if, you're, uh, if you're interested in, like, thinking through these things, we have a tons of resources on this kind of stuff because it's not like, it's not like one bad sin equates to just, like, well, this, thing isn't, this is the one thing that you're, you're, you're not believing about God, that you're denying that he exists. So I'm not trying to connect these dots like they're, like they're that simple. We're all very complicated, uh, and there's, there's lots of proverbs about how what's going on in our hearts is not that simple uh, to, to sort of figure out. But at the root of it, sort of at the, at the core of what's going on when we're acting foolish and, and bad things come out of us is what Jesus says. It's we're treasuring something not God. We're desiring something, we're valuing something, we're putting something up in our hearts that's less than God, and we're practically, for all intents and purposes, our hearts are saying that God does not exist. So what do we do with that? How do we learn wisdom? How do we wrestle with that foolishness? Like I said at the beginning, if we were to stop here, um, that would be lame. How do we, how do we, where's wisdom? And not just where's wisdom so I can feel better about myself because I'm less foolish, but where's wisdom so that I can experience more of what God has for me? Where's wisdom so I can enjoy more of his presence? Where's wisdom so I can see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel? And I want to focus on uh, I promise I won't take as long with every verse. So we're going to get to verse two now. Um, I want to I focus on what the fool doesn't do so that we can learn from that. Because there's a handful of things kind of going on in these next few verses. But I, I want to focus on what does the fool not do so that we can learn where is wisdom? What does the fool not do so that we can learn where is wisdom? So let's look at verse two. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. If you have a little footnote in your Bible or to see if there are any who act wisely. We're, we're, we're looking for, God's looking to see if there is wisdom. He says, who seek after God. It's a, it's a parallel phrase. So, He's looking for wisdom, and he's looking for those who seek after God. He's not finding it. And I think that's, a, that's the first way we find wisdom. We seek after God. Foolishness is not seeking after God in whatever particular situation that we're in. What does it mean? We're going to get a couple things. We're going to get a couple of like do this, like seek is a, is a thing that we should do. Um, and then at the, the last one is something that we should remember what God has done, and it's important to consider both of these things. But we should, we should seek after God. 
What does it mean to seek after God? If we're, if we're struggling with our hearts, if bad things are, are coming out of us, whether that's uh, my language, whether that's my expression, whether that's sexual sin, whether that's anxiety, what, anything that's not the fruit of the Spirit. We have love, joy, peace, faith. Those are all, those are all evidences that I am treasuring the, the one and true God. But when, when those things are not coming out of us, the fool doesn't seek after God. So then we can learn that we should be seeking after God. So what does that look like? I mean, that can look like a, a bunch of different things. This is, is a kind of a, a, a broad stroke. That, that could look as simple as spending time in the word. That's a way to seek after God. But it's not very complicated. That could look like going to him in prayer. Maybe just maybe that looks like a lot of us are 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 fairly biblically literate. We're not, you know, some of these concepts and and you know we don't read scripture and say, oh wow, I've never heard that before. But sometimes seeking after God just means stopping and considering who He is, His character, His love for you. When's the last time you stopped and just meditated on the wisdom of God, His care for you? and how much he loves you because of your union with his beloved son. I just thought about that. I just said, you know, this is, I'm, I'm so foolish, and yet God has connected himself to me, revealed his character to me, pours out his love for me, and is orchestrating everything in my life so that at the end of the day I could ultimately see more of him and, and be more impressed with who he is, find, find more joy in his presence. When's the last time we just stopped and thought about that? That's really hard for me, so I journal to force myself to write out some of those things, to dwell on that, to seek after God and say, Lord, help me, help me see more of your character. Help me, help me appreciate the beauty of who you are. Sometimes seeking after God can be uh, a way we like to worship. I know some of you are really musically talented. That's a great way for you to, to, to seek and understand God. Some of you have music that you appreciate that's about worship and enjoying God. That's a good way to seek after God. And if we want to find wisdom, if the fool doesn't do any of that, then it helps for us to say, okay, how do I then go after and seek after God? Let's look at the next couple of verses. Again, talking about the fool, he says in verse three, they have all turned aside. Together they have be become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon the Lord? It's interesting, um, in Galatians 5, Paul says something along the lines of, uh, why do you bicker with each other? He says, you, you, if, you don't, if you don't desire the right things, if, you don't, if you're not uh, uh, focused on loving your brothers and sisters, he uses this phrase, you will bite and devour one another. Like our, the sin that comes out of us when we're, when we're practically denying God's in our hearts devours us. And it sort of this picks up on the same language here. But I want to focus on that last phrase. So the the fool does not call upon the Lord. The fool does not call upon the Lord. 
So if we want wisdom, if, if we want heart change, if we want to treasure the right things, and we recognize where we're being foolish, saying, call upon the Lord. Ask him for help. Go to him. He's there. He wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to, to bring people in your lives to, to encourage you, to, to point you to his gospel, to remind you of his character, to help you maybe seek after him. Call upon the Lord is, is, is saying, go to God and, and just ask for these things. So it's another element of prayer. We, we, we plea with the Lord. We say, Lord, I, I, this, is, this, is, this is painful. I do act foolish. I do go after these things. I don't consider you. I practically deny you. He's saying, I'm here, arms wide open, come to me. We can, we can go to him and cry, Father, and say, I need your help. This isn't, this, I, this isn't working out. I feel like a fool. Things are pouring out of me that are, that are not honoring to you. He says, I know. Come to me. Ask me for help. I think something we, we can ask him for is we recognize the gap between what we should treasure in our hearts we recognize that we say, like the fool, there is no God. Knowing that doesn't just change the, the things. You know, like I, I wish that like, oh, okay, well, I just need to treasure God more. Cool, done. That's just recognition that there's a spiritual problem there. So God is saying, I am the one who will actually help you with that. Come to me, ask me, plead with me. Help, help, I want to help you see those things so that you do seek me more. The fool doesn't call upon God. And how many times do we struggle and we don't call upon God? Like daily. This is why I eat these words all week. <laughs> like how many times do we approach something, whether it's like the day isn't going like we thought it would go? Or... We're hurt by someone that, that we love or that we consider meaningful in our life or we're dealing with suffering that we've dealt with before. How often do we stop and say, Lord, I need help with this? How often do we seek him and call upon him and say, I'm a, I'm a fool, I need, I need wisdom from you? He, he's pleading with us to come to me, saying, don't be a fool. Wisdom is found in me, you can call upon me. And one of the more encouraging parts in verse five and six, he says, there they are in great terror. He's looking at the fools and it doesn't really go so well for them. This kind of reminds me of what Jesse's Psalm said. Uh, their, their troubles are, uh, uh, they run after other gods, their sorrows shall multiply. So he's looking at the fools, he says, there they are in great terror. They're denying the existence of the one true God and it's not going so well for them. It says, for God is with the generation of the righteous. There's, there's that, that intimacy that God has with us. And he says, you would shame the, the fools, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge, or for the Lord is his refuge. And it's this idea that in our sin, 
this idea that as we sort of act out of our foolish denial of who God is, we are sinful and it's destructive. And in a lot of times, it's destructive to God's people. It's destructive, like we're close to each other. So when we sin, guess what hurts first? He says, but remember. He said, seek after God, call out to God. But now he's saying, remember, the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is his refuge. And this is meant to be an encouragement. Our... God's desire to give us wisdom, God's desire to reveal himself to us so we have joy and we have peace and all the, the, the good fruit comes out of us because we, we treasure the one true and living God isn't because we were handling things so well before. God is not like, oh man, you had a, you had a thought you had a really good heart but now it's pretty foolish he understands the depths of our hearts, the spiritual brokenness of our hearts more than anyone, more than you will ever understand for the rest of your entire life. Which I think is why Paul, when he was older and writing to Timothy, says, I'm, I'm the, the chief among sinners. Like he's beginning to understand the depth of his foolishness on his way out. <laughs> and God's saying, I want you to see that so that you seek after me so that you turn to me for rescue, but I want you to remember that it's I'm the one who, who guarantees that I will bring you into my presence. I, I am the one who is your refuge from even your own foolishness. I am the one who's credited you with the perfect, wise life of my son and treat you like that and view you like that and am working to, to show you the, how your foolishness because I'm the one, God is the one who is our refuge. That's, that's the good, this is why we say we value the beauty of the gospel. Because without this idea that God is the one who is ultimately our refuge, without this idea that he's the one that we turn to when we're foolish, we're just another organization telling people that they should be better. Which is what every single religion and non-religion does on the planet. The, the differentiator, the beauty of the gospel is that we are failures like everybody else, and yet we can take refuge in God. That our, our foolishness has been nailed to a cross and, and buried, and now you and I are new creations resurrected in Christ Jesus. This is why we can deal with our foolishness. This is why we can be humiliated by the fact that we just don't handle things properly because our refuge is ultimately in Christ himself. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that as we wrestle with these things. And I think this is what ultimately leads to the plea that David has. Because we look at what foolishness is and we see that it's that this invisible spiritual reality about who we are and denying the wonder and the beauty of the creator and how that leads to what we, we were treasuring the wrong thing. And so because we're treasuring the wrong thing, what comes out of us isn't pretty. So it's, if we stop to reflect for just a minute, we're, we're very foolish. And then we see where, where wisdom comes from. Wisdom, in each one of those three things, it's, it's very God-reliant. You know, it's, it's not actually, I can't say, well, you should uh, think about these five things about your heart, do this thing, this, and boom, now you're wisdom. 
It's saying go to God, like seek him. It's saying call out, ask him for help. And when you fail, remember that he's the one that's your refuge. So if we look at foolishness and we see that in our lives, we look at wisdom over here and we see that all of this is relying on God, I think that makes sense of David's plea in Psalm 14, 7. He's like, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. It's like he's saying, Lord, you have to do something. If you don't bring salvation from the foolishness that I am, if you don't bring salvation from the foolishness that's surrounding around me, from from your very throne, this idea of Zion is like the heavenly throne. If you don't act to change something, we're stuck. There's nothing we can do. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. I think um, we have a little bit of a, a truncated view of what salvation is. Uh, there's, there's, there's sort of a past, present, and future reality of salvation. Um, let me give you an example. In Christ, uh, we're converted, we're baptized, uh, we're transformed, we're new creations, past tense. That's a true reality about who you are. You are saved. If you have been united to Christ and you trust him, you're saved. But you sin. But you sin. Like it's not, everything isn't fixed. That should be kind of an obvious statement. And so a lot of us look forward to the new creation. We look forward to the kingdom coming in full. We look forward to a great day of salvation. So there's this future aspect that we're all sorts of ready for. But it's not just the the past tense that I was being saved. It's not just this future reality that Jesus will accomplish salvation in the future. There is a, a present tense reality about salvation. We are being saved. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1, 18 says, the word of the cross is is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, present tense, but to us, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have been saved, but to us who are being saved, who are going through the process of salvation, the gospel is the very power of God. He's telling us. It's this gospel that is actually, currently, in the moment, powerful enough to reveal God to us, to rescue us from our foolishness. This is what David is saying. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Does he mean past tense? Sure. Does he mean future tense? Sure. But he also means now. Salvation. Salvation is a, is a huge concept in Scripture. And I think he looks at the foolishness in our hearts. He sees that wisdom comes from pouring ourselves out to God. And he, he looks and says, God, I need you to work. 
I need you to act. I need you to change the spiritual center of who I am so that I treasure you more than anything in this life. And then in the second part, second part he says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And there's, again, there's a, there's sort of a past, present, and future way to consider that. But I want to make the emphasis here. It's not if. He's not saying, well, if God works, we should be excited about that. He's saying when. And I think we can, with confidence, we can say God wants to step in and actually transform our spiritual center so that we are not foolish, so that we can value and treasure him at the deepest level so that we can experience his presence and be comforted by his joy. He's saying when God steps in, because he's going to, when you go to him for wisdom, when you plead with him, when you call out to him, when you remember that he's your refuge, and he steps in with his presence to encourage you, worship. Give thanks, rejoice, praise him, because this is what he's in the business of doing. It reminded me of James chapter one. James is like the most in your face apostle, which is probably why he has like the shortest book. God's like, we couldn't handle like a big book of James. <laughs> Just beat people over the head with it. Um, verse five, James chapter one, verse five. says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him call out to God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. This is, this is James's very near face way of saying, if you are seeking God, if you are calling out to God, if you are taking refuge in God for salvation from your own foolishness, and you don't think God wants to give those things to you, that's, you're denying God in your heart right there. You don't even understand the God that you're approaching if you go to him and you plead with him and you, you beg him to transform and to reveal himself and to bring salvation in the present tense for your life right now, if you don't think that's something God is gonna do, don't ask because you're not even talking to the right God. When he works, when he works, he will bring salvation. He promises. So he says, go to me for wisdom. Ask him for wisdom. Recognize that you're a fool. Because I want to reveal myself to my people. I want you to be more satisfied, more joyful, have more peace, see more of my beauty. When you go to me, I want to give you all those things. So when you call out to me, I will reveal myself to you. 
I will, I will bring salvation so that you can respond and you can rejoice. I kind of want to end with a quote here. I, um, it's a little bit disconnected from, from, the, from, the, from the passage itself, but I think it, it, it's an important point for me. Um, when I think about foolishness and when I think about wisdom, there very much is an aspect of that. There, there's very much an aspect of that that changes us so we sin less. Right, like we don't, we don't want to be harmful for others. We don't, we don't want to dishonor God in our actions. Um, and when we're foolish, there should, be some, there should be some grief there. Like that's painful. We don't, we don't want to act that way. But I think the other aspect of, of why we consider our hearts, why we think about like the central aspect of who we are, is because it's not just about stopping sin. It's the spiritual thing that we want to wrestle with, our, our hearts, but it's about enjoying the, the wonder and the beauty and the presence of God. And if we're going to wrestle with our hearts, we can't pick one of those two things. If we're going to deal with our foolishness, we can't say, well, I just want to enjoy God while I act a fool. It doesn't work that way. And we can't say, well, I just want to stop acting a fool, but how much I enjoy God is, is not relevant. I should just do the right thing. It doesn't work that way either. And I, and I really like this quote because I think he sums it up in a, a little booklet called, called Keeping the Heart. It's something, if you've been around me for any amount of time in the last year, I've been referencing quite a bit. Um, it's just a little booklet on how, how believers... Can, can keep their heart or, or sort of wrestle with this spiritual element of who we are. And he says, by keeping the heart, understand the diligent and constant use of all holy means. So holy means are like calling out to God. Holy means are, are seeking after him. Holy means are remembering that I have my, my refuge in him. These are, these, are, these are the holy means that God has given us to, to accomplish and to receive wisdom. So all holy means to do what? To preserve my soul from sin. That's the, I don't want to be a fool. And, I wish that and was like all caps, maintain my heart's sweet and free communion with God. Both. Keep the soul from sin and maintain sweet and free communion with God. This is why we have to wrestle with our foolishness. Yes, so we are less foolish, but more so that we can maintain sweet and free communion with God. And that's the salvation that he offers. That's what he wants to do. Thanks be to God for that unspeakable gift. A creator who is willing and desires to reveal himself to a foolish people. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can go to you. I know I have been a fool this morning, yesterday, this week. And if I, I stop to consider all the moments that I have have you escape from, from my most center of my being, I'm overwhelmed some days. I should be overwhelmed every day. And yet, in your gospel, you know that. 
you understand how foolish we are, and yet you went, you went to the cross and died for us and have united yourself to us and have loved us before the foundation of the world and are working to transform us more and more into your image. And so that we're not being transformed in your image so that we could just look better. We're being transformed into your image so that we could enjoy sweet and free communion with you, Lord. I pray that you would give us more of that so that we can enjoy more of you. In your name I pray, amen.